You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BNH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan White. Greetings and welcome to the BNH Photography Podcast. Today, John Harris and I are going to be talking about giving back. And from our experiences, photographers are in fact a generous bunch often willing to dedicate their time and money to support causes they believe in. A simple Google search will reveal many organizations with photography or a photographer at their heart, which provides support for those who need it. Flashes of Hope, 100 Cameras, Tiny Sparrow, The Giving Lens are just a few, but our guests today have created their own organizations with the goal to raise money for charitable causes, whether it be their own fund or one that incorporates a range of charities to support. Our first guest is editorial and portrait photographer Salem Krieger, who is joining us in the studio today. Salem will talk about his organization, Art is Helping, which supports both artists and nonprofit organizations. And after a break, we'll present our conversation with Allison Wright, which we recorded at the recent Optic 2017 Photography Conference. We'll speak with Allison about her work, her tragic accident while working in Laos, and the incredible story of her recovery and how that led to her founding Faces of Hope which raises funds for organizations Allison personally supports, particularly for children in developing nations. But first, you know the drill. Please go to iTunes and subscribe to our show and leave us a review. It really does help. And a big thank you to the many who have done just that. As recently as last week, we were ranked number 17 in the iTunes podcast arts category, and our listener numbers are increasing all the time. Um, and by the way, we, we say it makes a difference. Upper management has just restored our bathroom privileges, so please keep, keep coming back. A specific thanks to listener Ken Chekai, who left us a nice message on our SpeakPipe widget, which you can find along with all of our past episodes on our landing page at bhphotovideo.com slash explorer slash podcast. And now Al's gearhead pick of the week. Ready for this one? If you have not purchased a drone yet, and if you're not filling the sky with those little buzzy things, don't bother. Okay, it's passe. Power Vision Power Ray Explorer Underwater ROV Kit is what you want. Get this, <laughs> 98 feet depth rating, 150 feet of tether. You basically can fly around underwater shooting 4K video, 1080p real-time streaming. It also shoots 12 megapixel photos at five frames per second. You could view images on an iPhone or Android and wireless transmission for remote control. This thing's kind of cool. It looks like a rumba uh, <laughs> that you kind of fly around underwater. Now, there's three flavors. You get the Explorer, which I just uh, told you about. And then they have the second version. It's the PowerVision PowerA Angler Underwater ROV kit. Now, that comes with everything I mentioned, plus a Power Seeker fish finder and bait <laughs> drop line. You can't make All this stuff up. All for $19.99? That's right. Actually, $17.99 with two zeros afterwards, okay? And if you really want to go full tilt boogie on this one, okay, for $18.88, you can get all of the above with the Zeiss VR1 Plus goggles and, of course, the Power Seeker fish finder and bait drop line. That's Power Vision Power Ray Underwater ROV kits. Operators are standing by. 
Salem Krieger is a New York-based photographer, adept at a range of genres, but specializing in environmental portraiture. His clients include American Airlines, Nike, Forbes, the Financial Times of London, and many others. His work is noted for his use of color, for clean aesthetic choices, and when applicable, a sense of humor. I like that part of it. Salem is currently the director of sponsorship for the New York chapter of ASMP, but is here today to talk about Art is Helping, an organization that he founded specifically to bring artists and charitable organizations together. Salem, I'm going to let you fill us in on the details, and welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, Art is Helping. This started, I think, at the end of 2015, around October. I started getting volumes of charities asking me for money, Greenpeace, Planned Parenthood, City Meals on Wheels, everybody. And I'm sitting there going, you know, I'd love to support all of you, but this is is ridiculous. You know, I can't keep spending this much cash. And why do they think photographers have so much money to just (laughs) give away like this? Everybody thinks that. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I started thinking to myself, you know, what is it I can do to help them? In the past, I've had organizations ask me for prints to donate and then they would sell it and raise money. And I kept thinking, you know, this costs me money because these are inkjet prints. I have labs print these for me, time, the whole thing. I said, well, there's got to be a better method. And I came up with this idea. What if I sold some of my own personal prints and donated part of the money? Mm-hmm. That way I can cover my cost and give them something. It doesn't have to be 100%, but it's a fair deal. Everybody wins. So I started putting together some of my own images and, and just a little light bulb went off. And I said, all my friends are creatives. Well, what's wrong with them? I started contacting them. Within a very short time of period, uh, this is all in October 2015, uh, I managed to get a chunk of artists, I'd say most probably at least 10 or 12 artists who said, Salem, great idea, I'd love to join with you. So I started asking them and I structured it in such a way that it wasn't just a free for all. We have a three-tier pricing where we have 20 by 24, 16 20s and 11 by 14s, uh, 1,500 and 250. And they're all printed by Dugal here in New York. Mm-hmm. And this way... You know, people aren't ordering all sorts of sizes or whatever. It's just everything's very structured. I, the key to this whole thing actually was an organization I worked with called rational-animal.org. Susan Brandt, the founder, um, it's, a, it's a media group that helps at-risk animals. Mm-hmm. And she's a 501c3, and that was the key to this whole thing. Because originally I was going to collect the money from purchases and then on my taxes say, well, I donated X amount of money to charity, but that doesn't work. It's not that simple to have a dollar-to-dollar ratio. I needed to get a tax, a 501c3. They looked at the plan. Their tax attorney said, yeah, this looks great. And Susan now collects the money for me and distributes the money for us. She sends me money, then I take care of the artist and all the printing costs. And it's been working very seamlessly. Nice. So at the heart of this, though, is a a lot of trust of People have trust in you that you're going to handle this or this well, and the money that goes through you is going to go back to the right have, people. And yes, I have 27 artists now. They all much, pretty much know me personally, mm-hmm. and that's why they said, Salem, yeah, sure, we'd love to help you out. Because having artists managing money often goes south. That's yes. a- <laughs> <laughs> and, and why doing it, as you mentioned, through your own taxes didn't work? Why did you need the— According to some tax accounts I mm-hmm. talked to— if I take in $1,000 and I write on my tax returns a $1,000 donation or something, somewhere along the line, it doesn't work. It doesn't I don't work really out. understand it, but it's not dollar for dollar. Right. The key to this whole, the whole key was getting a 501c3 in place to do this. Mm. And then when Susan said, her people said, this look fine, we went I ahead. I think that just gives you guidelines because otherwise it's just, it's the wild west. So I, I understand that aspect. Of right. It. And people have asked me, why don't I start a 501c3? And I said, I only have, you know, a life to live. I, I can't deal with this. Too much paperwork. <laughs> 
Who are some of the artists that uh, have joined up with you? Well, I have a range. People from New York I know, James Weber, Daniel Meyer, Jack Perno in Chicago, which is an interesting story, actually. Uh, we sold one of his pieces. It was mm-hmm. a large piece for $1,000. And after I sold it, Shortly afterwards, uh, Jack called me and said, Salem, I got your check. Thank you very much. And I said, oh, no problem. He goes, but I just want you to know something. I said, what's that? He goes, knowing that my work actually fed people that week was such a cool feeling. I said, you got it. That was the project. That's, that's the core of the project, knowing that your work was actually art is doing something. Art is helping. And that and was it. And it was painless. It's not like he had to go out and... Uh, the buyer, no one had to do anything. The buyer got the print. Yeah. The buyer got 50%, nearly a 50% tax write-off. Um, if she used a credit card, you got points on your card. The yeah. artist got some money for his time and effort, and a bunch of people got fed that week. So all those perks added up. And the organizations that the money goes to, is that chosen on a case-by-case basis, or the artist makes the decision, or the buyer? That That is actually something I personally had to go through to find organizations, which was a little tricky at first, because in the beginning, I was actually calling them to tell them about this program. I had a lot of pushback. Mm. And that was something I learned about um, nonprofits. I was surprised to hear about because they, you know, they have their operations and they make their money. Um, so we make notice on the site also that these are just selections that I make. Mm-hmm. This is has no endorsement by these companies. This is just my personal discretion who should be on there. But in each case, it, it, I mean, how do you determine, let's say, for example, in the case you just mentioned, that, that money going to, to feed somebody, how come it went to that organization as opposed to oh, another one? Well, that's how the site works. The buyer goes, looks at the artwork, she goes, oh, I love that piece. Mm-hmm. You click on it, and then the whole drop-down list of all the different nonprofits comes up. She chose, so she chose City it. Meals on Wheels, ah. and she chose to pick a $1,000 purchase. Gotcha. So you match up the art you want to the organization you See, want this, at the price range you want. There's no smoke and mirrors. It's pretty straight of what's going on. And when you buy something, you know exactly what you're getting and where your money is going specifically. And on top of that, yeah, and on top of that, on the website, the total financial breakdown is listed there. You see where every penny goes. Uh, that's that's terrific. Now, you have a wonderful publication here that features the artists that you're representing, yourself included. Uh, your, was it Auto, uh, what's Auto America? Auto America. I stopped. I was just telling you before we started recording that I was flipping through this wonderful artist representing us, and I came across two of you. I didn't know at the time that you were pictures, and I just stopped. I, I turned oh. to John. I go, I love this. Oh, thank you. It's your pictures. Uh, it's nice. Aside from this publication and your website, how else do you get word out about this organization? Social media is the big one. Okay. Um, I've had a PR firm called the uh, PR House um, that's been helping us, and basically a lot, a lot of word of mouth. I mean, uh-huh. social media is, is kind of a quagmire for me. I'm not that in depth with it, so that's always a struggle that we're going through. Dugal did a blog with us, which was really great. Mm-hmm. Adorama did a blog with us, which was really fantastic. You should do a podcast with one of the big retailers. Let's do it. <laughs> um, it's not just photography. There's artists of yeah, all varieties. That was my say, key. Yes. This yeah. was not to be just a photo book. Mm-hmm. I know artists who are painters. I know sculptors. I know um, media artists. I know a range of people I wanted to bring in. As long as we could reproduce them That's an issue. as yeah. inkjet prints that Dugal is handling, right. that, that was the issue. Now, so You mentioned uh, sculptures. sculptors. Turn to the first page. You'll see a car. Uh, Okay, this is Jose Maximiliano Sinani mm-hmm. Paredes Chesches. Right, what he's done is he's taken two Volkswagen Beetles, older ones, and welded them together. And he's done this in numerous other places. I believe this one was in Brooklyn, 
possibly in Bushwick. I'm not guaranteed on that. But That's what but, we call double parking yes. in Brooklyn, yes. <laughs> but it's just a beautiful aesthetic, and I love his whole idea of dealing with contemporary and the whole idea of the car population yeah. and all that. It's very yin-yang, too, because you got the two, oh, precisely. <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> but in this case, the, the, the buyer is, is getting a, a inkjet print of this image, right? Everything, yeah. the end result is an inkjet print. Oh, so right. everything is all, yeah, okay, that's, that's my, that's my, that's And it. does okay. Dugal donate their services or to Don, discount? Dugal gave me a very workable price. Right. They, right. they were very easy, they were very good to work with and they do beautiful work and, and on top of that, their structures can handle large volume and that's right. what I needed, someone who could handle the FedEx, the packing, the whole Everything. Oh yeah, they're, they're yeah. soup to nuts. So in that we have place. this yeah. whole system is all uh, fulfillment worked out. It's seamless. And, and do any artists come to you with a, a specific cause that they want to be included, or do they say, "Hey, I want my stuff"? I mean, it, or is it always up to the buyer? Or do the, does the artist say, "Listen, I want my, you know, the profits or the revenues from my work going to such and such a group"? It, it, I, I would just tell them um, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, it's the buyer that dictates where the money's going, right. and that's the beauty of it. The buyer has a, a choice mm. to pick from and a choice of artworks to pick from. And what are some of the organizations? Uh, Greenpeace, mm -hmm. City Meals on Wheels, uh, Rational Animal. So we cover everything I mean, from- there's a long list, I know. Yeah. yeah. There's homeless issues, there's animal issues, there's environmental issues. Mm -hmm. And there's, I just want, There's no shortage of problems in the world that need help here. <laughs> no. Yeah, unfortunately. But at least I, what I've tried to do is come up with a creative way to deal with that, that, that there are all these problems out there. Mm -hmm. And have, mm -hmm. you know, people love collecting artwork, why not? Hmm. Let me ask, would, would you, uh, do you think you would have started something like this when you were a younger man? Uh, I actually did do something, but not like this. Okay. There was a time when, oh boy, this must have gone back into the 90s, when I was printing up my own t-shirts. I had a company making black t-shirts that had the number one on the front and it said human being, human on top and being. And I was handing them out to homeless people and then doing portraits of them <laughs> wearing this saying, remember, I'm one human being. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I had inklings of this, but years before. Right. And has, I mean, is it something that just comes from your, your nature, your personal, or were there projects going back to related to your photography career think, that might have sparked something I think something there's like something this? in all of us that just wants to help. I don't know how that always manifests, but there's just something that's inside all of us that wants to do something. And being in the creative arts, I always said, well, you know, what is it that I offer best? And making art is what I do. It's really funny that, you know, if you're in New York City, seeing panhandles is nothing unusual. Uh, unfortunately, it's increasing a lot. And I'll ignore many of them, but every once in a while, you, you turn around, you drop some change or a dollar into a thing for whatever reason it is. And, and last night, uh, we were leaving the Lee Friedlander speech at the New York Library. And on the side on 42nd Street, you got all the usual craziness going on at 8th or in the evening. There were two little girls standing there playing violins. And maybe they were seven, 10 years old. Little girls just playing... And I stopped because, again, it's, it's, they were creating this music. It was child music. It was, you know, rough. But it, it, the fact that you have these two people out there creating this stuff in the middle of all this crazy, and I just had to drop a dollar and teach you other things. They're baskets. But it's true. I mean, if art does something, it makes you want to give a little bit more. I, I think there's something, too, that be visual or audio or something. But music, art, makes you want to give, makes you want to do something. So much of the arts, there's many factions to it. There's many pieces of the pie. Some of it's just decorative. Some of it has real purpose. I, I wanted to do this project because I also knew that art is helping, is, a, is proactive. It was doing something, was manifesting something. Um, you know, I love to collect art. I have pieces in my apartment and just I love looking at them. But I wanted to go further and that was why the title Art is Helping is, it's a proactive name. What are some of your pet 
uh, organizations that you have a particular interest in? Oh, Rational Animal. We did a whole campaign for the city. Uh, it's called the New York City Mayor's Alliance, where we did a campaign to help promote spay and neuter for the animals and shelters. Oh, is that what, okay. I was just going to ask you what the goal of that organization was. Okay. They have different goals. One of them is called their Mother's Comfort Project, where uh, they have beds actually sewn. We actually have a group of people, about 25 people, sold these little beds, soft blanket things, and we go to the shelters, clean out their cages, and put these in there for the cats and dogs because they're sitting on stainless steel all day or they're sitting in their litter boxes. This was just a very simple project that Susan Brandt came up with, and it's really effective. Wow. I think what's neat about this, too, is the fact that for all the participants, it's it's basically a passive activity. Oh. In other words, you're sending your file to Dugal, and I imagine they have... They're keeping the files there and somebody places an order. It's just happening. Exactly. Everything's in place. Somebody makes the order. We collect the money. I pay Dugal. They print, pack, ship, the whole thing. Is it kind of running itself? To, I mean, I imagine At setting this point, whole thing up must have been very well, the, time consuming. The biggest problem is like any business now. It's social media, getting mm -hmm. the word out all the time. Mm -hmm. you know, and certain times a year are more effective. I know I'm gearing up right now to push harder because when we're going to go into the fall, we have the tax write-off season. Mm -hmm. Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. You know, summer things tend to die down a little bit. Mm -hmm. People aren't thinking about it so much. And how much time do you spend working on this, would you say? What year is this? This is uh, <laughs> 2017, last I checked. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of time. In between everything else I'm doing, I spend all the time. I just had a Kickstarter campaign that ended, unfortunately, unsuccessfully. Uh, but it was related to this project. It was yeah. called Face Without a Name. My assistant, Sylvia Paracon, and I were photographing homeless people around New York and supplying them what we called a comfort supply bag, mm -hmm. which was everything from like hand creams, toothpaste, dental floss, underwear, socks, T-shirts in exchange for their labor. They get paid for their time. They were on camera and I'm shooting them. I also gave them each $25 cash. Mm -hmm. So, and then we were going to compile this to make another book, which was going to be sent to 100 senators and 435 House of Representatives, but we didn't meet the gold on Kickstarter. So I'm restructuring how I might revise that again. You just dust yourself off and keep going. I like that. That's good. <laughs> do the artists, they offer certain works and or is it something that they can kind of update regularly and add more? There, there are limitations in that some of the artists are showing galleries. Mm -hmm. And I said to them, don't give me any work that you're showing in galleries because there's, there's going to be issues. Right. I need works that are unlimited editions because we have no idea. You might sell one piece, you might sell 400,000. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. So yeah. Yeah. a lot of artists have to think about exactly what was available to do that. But once uh, they started supplying work, they, they loved how they saw the layouts and they saw everything. And Xerox had sent copies of the book to every artist involved in the project. And uh, they've been a great sponsor along with Dugal, mm -hmm. Pixie, Site Welder. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But everything is basically on the site. I mean, and Site Welder is the organization that Correct. builds the site. But if, so yeah. if people really want to find works to purchase, go to the site. And it's that's, all that's the easiest yeah. thing. All, yeah. all the information is there. It's yeah, very simple. Right. And what what's the volume now? How how often are things being purchased, and and how how's it during the summer? Going? We've noticed it's slowing down. Mm -hmm. It was pretty decent for a little while. We sold a bunch of prints and high end prints, actually a thousand dollar range, which mm -hmm. was that was great. Mm -hmm. We sold a print not too long ago by Daniel Serene, who had photographed uh, an actor who was hanging out in Central Park one day, just doing some pantomime. Well, nineteen seventy four. Who was the actor? Turned out to be Robin Williams. Oh, that, I, I think Petapixel ran that picture. It might it was have black been. and white. It yeah, was black and white. And Daniel was my friend, and he he let me sell that for him. What's the most unusual piece that you've had so far? If there's anything that stands out, because again, you're soliciting artwork. What was maybe the most surprising piece that came through? If the, if if there was. You know, I, I see. I'm so used to so much imagery, and nothing really shocks me. I, mean, I, I get I, that. <laughs> I, I, 
you know, value artwork that has some kind of insight to it or something that's really beautifully done, my personal tastes, you know, I had to edit this and yeah, I, I would show it to people to make sure there was a general range of work going into this book because this is not geared towards the art world per se. This is not, you know, Mary Boom. This is not yeah. the art world. This is anybody out globally who's on the internet who appreciates this and the project itself. And what's the range of sizes of prints? Because, you know, Dugal oh. could cover buildings. I know what they're capable yes. of doing. We, we sell the three prints. Um, 1114 is the smallest for 250 1620 at five. And on twenty by twenty-four at a thousand. So all the pr the prices are the same, exactly the same, regardless of the artist. Exactly. That's I like that. That's that. I think that really I like the way it levels the field. So essentially, that's it. You have three price ranges, three sizes. Exactly. That's and the simple. buyer again chooses the image, mm -hmm. and the buyer chooses the price point. Gotcha. It's kind of click click done. Yes. Yeah. And do you want to speak a little bit about the artist Suzanne Krieger? Oh. Well, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her. <laughs> okay. Hi, Mom. Uh, my mom has been an artist most of her life. And I'm sure that somewhere along the line that had an effect on me. And the image you're looking in there, one of the images was, was uh, an output on a Mac computer she had. And the, the funny story about that is I went to her apartment one day and I said, oh, Mom, what's that? She goes, oh, I just printed this out. I said, oh, great. Let me see the file. I'll, I'll save it and we'll back it up. And she goes, a what? And I said, a file. She had no idea what the computer was. She <laughs> said, oh, I thought it was like a sketch device where you draw something, you draw it, and then you print it out and turn the machine off. It's not? So, no. Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, but here, and in the end of the, you know, at the end of the story, the funny thing is she was actually making one-of-a-type images because she wasn't saving anything. Uh -huh. okay. I just happened to be fortunate enough because I would always have my camera with me and I would photograph her works. And uh, lo and behold, I ended up putting it in the book. And mm. I've gotten a lot of good response on her work. Yeah. She's only 94, so. She's <laughs> got a long way to go. <laughs> Do you want to mention some of the other artists that are involved? Uh, Daniel Meyer was mm -hmm. a really great friend of mine out in California. Uh, he, he did a whole series on architecture or the blandness of architecture and contemporary social critique on architecture. Uh, Julie Gross, a fabulous painter here in New York. She does these beautiful designs. Um, Jack Perno in Chicago. Um, he, I know commercially he does a lot of fashion work, but he was applying this process of 20 by 24 Polaroids into mm -hmm. a lot of his work. Uh, James Weber, very interesting. He was taking a large format camera. I, James, don't hold me to this, but I believe you told me it was larger than an 11 by 14. It was even bigger, but shooting on plates mm -hmm. to make uh, photographs out west that look like they were from the last century yeah. or actually the century before. Um, but they're My phone has an app that does that, by the way. Don't tell them. I'm okay. sure it no. does. <laughs> uh, it's just a, a Stephanie Dworkin did a beautiful series on Coney Island with, a, I believe, a Holga, which is a plastic lens I, camera. That caught my eye. I was looking at those. Those Jada are terrific Fabricio. images. Yeah. These are some great shots, too. Um, Jada Fabricio. Jada is very interesting psychologically. I love her work yeah. with the hair coming yeah. out of the water force. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, I think it's a nice mix of, it gives a very, a large range of different thinking patterns. Absolutely, absolutely. It's good. That alleyway shot, I'm, I'm a Brooklyn boy. I know exactly where that alley is from Coney Island. Mm -hmm. oh. I stop and I go, I know where that is. That's Stephanie a great Dorkin. picture. Yep. Yeah. Stephanie. Um, and you'd mentioned that it, it took a little bit, or, or maybe it still does, for some of the organizations to kind of come around because they have their embedded ways. But I've, have they since? Kind I've of totally come to stopped it? calling them. You have? Totally. Yeah. Okay. I found the pushback from them was just, it was surprising to mm -hmm. me that when I would call them and say, I have a way to help you make money. 
I'm trying to raise money for you and it's not costing you anything. All I wanted was to put our logo on their website so we can get inbound traffic so their audience knows it was there. We've gotten responses, oh, that's great, we'll get back, never hear from them. It was just very unusual dealing with nonprofits. So I decided to put the disclaimer on there saying these are just my personal discretion who I would like to support and that's how the list grows. Some of this was driven by my thinking, what, what is art and what is the function of art? Mm -hmm. And I think every artist, photographer, painter, scroll, everybody, how do you see yourself as an artist? Is, are you just a content provider making stuff? Are you just adding to more consumer merchandising? Or is your material having some effect? And, they're, you know, they're most probably all valid. I tend to lean towards how do you, can you make work, have a great time doing it, and having a result with it that, that's beneficial. Mm -hmm. My commercial work is different because I'm working, for, it's an applied work. I'm working with clients to get their results satisfied. And that's a very, that's a great thing too. You know, I was just telling Alan earlier, I, I've been, I was in the North Pole, for instance, with the National Guard. And I'm standing there and I'm thinking to myself, first of all, how many people on the planet get to go to the North Pole? I'm up here photographing. Oh, and I'm getting paid to do this. Mm -hmm. So there are those moments where you go, this is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. And in that same vein, having art is helping is my art feeds people, helps organizations like the animal organizations, helps the environment with Greenpeace. There's even uh, radio stations, non-commercial radio stations listed on there because mm -hmm. they have 24-7 streaming of great music, mm -hmm. which to me is a real perk having out there yeah. on the internet. Yeah. So those, those are the larger, that's the tip of the iceberg thing. This whole concept works well because A, you're supporting artists. That's a good thing. And you're supporting people who have trouble feeding themselves. Well, that, that was the whole key right That's there. That's right there. That's the whole thing. But it's, it's, it's everybody gets something out of it, no matter so, what so. your needs are. Well, the buyer also, I mentioned earlier, the buyer not only gets artwork, they, but get, they, a have this, they get a partial tax deduction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they know that it wasn't just a, a, a selfish purchase. No, they actually gave something with that purchase. So that's good. I like that a lot. That works well. Right. It, it, it breaks the mold of just giving money and walking yeah. away and that's that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does it feel good? Oh, yeah. It's a very cool feeling. Okay. It's cool to get anything done. I'm yeah. amazed at anything. Even if I don't like what somebody does, I'm like, wow, well, give them credit. At least he got it done. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It takes so much to get anything off the ground these days. Well, like I, I think Woody Allen once said, 90% uh, of life is just showing up. Right. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, if our listeners would like to uh, check out more work and look into this uh, project, where should they go? Artishelping.com. And if you want to send me an email, it's right there on the website. Okay. All right. And this will be on our, go to the B&H. Yeah, you know, B&H. Yeah, we'll we're going to have all this information sure. on our landing page as well when the site, when this podcast goes live. Uh, and it's terrific. Um, uh, Salem, thank you so much for joining us well, today. Terrific organization and great project and want to see it grow. Thanks, man. Appreciate your time. Thank you both. Okay, we're going to take a short break and we come back. We're going to be speaking with Allison Wright. Stay tuned. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at bhphotovideo, hashtag bhphotopodcast. We are back at Optic 2017 with Allison Wright, who, according to website, her website is the 2013 National Geographic Traveler of the Year. Not too many people can say that. That's pretty cool. That's 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 pretty good stuff. Um, you have a special project that you have been working on. Could you tell us a little bit about it? So yes, um, in the year 2000, I was in a 
I was on assignment in Laos, and I got in a terrible, devastating bus accident, and um, I nearly lost my life on a remote jungle road in Laos. And the people around me were killed. I was pulled off a burning bus by a couple of good Samaritan. A couple men came in and pulled me off this bus and saved my life. And when I came to, I realized that very quickly that I was in very bad shape. I had broken my back, my pelvis, all my ribs. My arm was half severed off. And I was in a remote country with no health care. And these villagers dragged me to their village and saved my life by sewing my arm back on with a needle and thread, no painkillers, nothing. And they stayed with me for, for 10 hours. And I managed to get out through the kindness of strangers. A, a British aid worker found me and drove me to Thailand, uh, eight hours in the back of a pickup truck. And I was three weeks in intensive care in Thailand. And uh, they didn't think I was going to make it. And when I came to, uh, was given the pretty grim prognosis that I, I would most likely probably never walk again. And I was medevaced back to the States, and it was a very long struggle for me to get back to uh, my life. I had to learn how to walk again, and the carrot at the end of the stick was really getting back to doing this work that I love so much. And uh, I had more than 30 surgeries, and I remember this doctor coming in and saying, you better think about what you want to do with your life now, because you're most likely never going to work as a photographer again, you're most likely never going to walk again. And I was like, really? Because I plan on climbing Mount Kilimanjaro for my birthday next year, and he sent me to a psychiatrist saying I was in denial. And um, <laughs> You're but, my kind of person. I like but, you already. I do. And, and actually, uh, you know, I... I I did it. It took me a couple years, and and but I made it to the to the top of Kili. And but for me, this was a really uh, a pivotal, life changing experience. I didn't want to change my life. It reconfirmed for me that I was on the right path. I really, really wanted to get back to being a photojournalist, this a photographer, and traveling the world. And how long had you been working as a photographer before your accident? I had already published, I think, three books at this point. Okay. You know, I, was, I had been working in Asia for seven years at that point. I had worked on a newspaper for a number of years. I, so I've been pretty well established for probably 10, 12 years, you know, working as a photographer. So, so you would be starting literally from scratch if you decided to take a different route at this point. Yeah, but you know, what was interesting is that when I couldn't, shoot, I actually wrote. And I wrote a book. It's called Learning to Breathe, One Woman's Journey of Spirit and Survival. And uh -huh. that actually changed the whole trajectory of my life because I actually did better financially writing a book than I made ever on a photo book, ironically. Um, I'm from California. It actually gave me the money to move to New York. So <laughs> talk about making lemonade out of lemons, um, but I've always written. Uh, I, write, I write with my, with my photographs, but, but, you know, I was bedridden on a morphine drip for months, you know, staring at a ceiling, which was really challenging for someone like me that's, you know, an avid scuba diver, kayaker, hiker, you know, photojournalist, and here I'm suddenly bedridden. So for me, there was, there was a strong story to tell um, about overcoming and the kindness of strangers. And so um, I had always photographed this kind of work 
um, working in sort of post-disaster conflict areas, documentary work, um, travel. But what changed for me is that it brought a whole new empathy to my work. And I always hoped that making a photograph would make a difference. But then it occurred to me, why not me? And so what it, this experience did for me was inspired me to start my own nonprofit, which is called the Faces of Hope Fund. It's called the Faces of Hope. And it's a fund that um, it, it helps women and children in crisis through education and healthcare. And as I speak or, you know, when I go around, I show my photos and people are moved, what can I do to help? They can give to my fund, this foundation, and every cent goes directly back into the communities I photograph in, every cent. Nothing goes to me, doesn't go towards the work, it literally goes back to... Which are some of, could you give us names of some of these communities? Where are these places? So, when I covered the earthquake in Haiti. Okay. So, for me, it, it, it also was challenging for me that I, I just couldn't stand there and say, oh, I hope that making a photo will make a difference. I wanted to do more. So, I raised thousands of dollars for tents for Haiti after the earthquake. I was there right after the earthquake happened. But with the sale of photos or no. in all, all capacities? No, yeah. I have a, in my nonprofit, I have money. And then what I do is I partner with nonprofits on the ground. Um, and why it initially started is because I wanted to connect photography and philanthropy. And the very first thing that I did is because I wrote this book, I went back, I knew that for me, I needed to get over the sort of post-traumatic stress I was having about getting back on a bus because this is how I was gonna have to continue traveling around the world. And so I went back to this village and I needed to get back on the same bus in the same place. What's your time frame? Three years, three years after the accident. And when I got to this village, everybody came pouring wow. out and they couldn't believe that I was alive. Wow. They couldn't believe that I was walking and I couldn't believe that they remembered me. <laughs> and it was like this really s- very tearful reunion. And so I, well, that the- was the inspiration for me wanting to start this foundation because I thought, oh my gosh, I want to help these people. I want to give something back to them. And you obviously made a difference to them as well. Oh, that was, sure, huge. And so... So the first thing I did with this money is I brought five American doctors and $10,000 worth of medical supplies back to that little village in Laos to get a little clinic going. And that was like so moving that I thought this is what I want to do wherever I work. Yeah. And that was the really cool thing. So then when I got to Haiti, I could see something, you know, I knew that hopefully my pictures would show people, educate them, but I could see something tangible. At least had, had I knew. Had you ever been to Haiti before? No, I didn't know the first thing Because I've been there about... several times, and so I, I know what you, you... I didn't know the first thing about Haiti. Yeah. I got sent there, and, you know, you're ho- you know, like you're hoping that it... You know, these pictures will somehow get out, and they'll yeah, make yeah, it... But yeah. you don't know. Like, you, it, as a photojournalist, I think more and more it feels sort of, like, vacuous, you know? Like, who's seeing this? Is this doing anything? I mean, seriously, sometimes I just cry because I feel like, oh, what am I doing with my life? Like, this is so, you know, is this really doing anything? Because I just, I literally just came back from Haiti 
two weeks ago. And I thought, God, nothing's changed here. What, what, would I, what was I even doing all this for? You know, like, so you don't really know. So this for me was, you know, something. And, and I know it's like, a, it's, a, it's like digging your way out the teaspoon. It's so little. But you know what? If we all just do something little, it's something. Something's better than yeah, nothing. Well, one person drove you eight hours in the back of a pickup exactly. truck that saved your life. Exactly. <laughs> like, that's what I think. Yeah. What kindness would you do for a stranger? Exactly. What yeah. kindness would I do for a stranger? So it's more like the act. And then this idea with Faces of Hope... It's also this idea where it's, it's connecting the, um, the visual story. So then, um, because I do partner with different nonprofits, and a lot of them are small and grassroots, like sending girls to school in Africa or India, helping people, um, like after I covered the tsunami in Sri Lanka. Um, I just came back from a horrible story where girls were being raped, little girls being raped by their teachers in the Congo. And there was a, an amazing woman that's having to live, you know, in, in seclusion. She started a shelter for these girls because nobody wants them. Nobody's helping them. They're shunned by everybody. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Then their parents kick them out because they're pregnant. So little girls are there with babies. So, you know, I was able to support her. And the money does go to work with people that are on the ground. It's not like me just handing out money. It has to be vetted. You know, gotcha. it goes yeah. through mm -hmm. like a, a nonprofit and it's another foundation. So it's being vetted again. There's, all, there's accountability. It's, all, it's yeah. all accountability, exactly. Uh -huh. And then what I do is then I do a series of pictures on my Faces of Hope website saying, I saw this, I vetted it. And if you feel moved by this, you can look into it and you can give to them. So it's, it's also creating an awareness that you might not see that are small grassroots organizations in these places where I work. It sounds like you have an ability to act quickly too because yes. it's small enough and because it's you you can get something there exactly. quickly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and it, yeah. and it is. It's I I can do it well, very you can quickly. Yeah. It yeah. And that and that's what these people need like right away, mm -hmm. you know? And it's that's the frustration. I do a lot of humanitarian aid organization photography and it's it's so amazing how frustrating it can be to see how some of these are run and how long it can take, you know. And so I know I'm kind of small potatoes, but this is different. This is really trying to help on a visual level, on an educational level, and on a personal level, you know. Like, you know, I know that I'm doing it for myself as well, you know. Like, I just need to be able to give back in some way because people have done that for me. And it's just, in, in a way, it, it, you know, I just wouldn't be here right now if it weren't for the kindness of strangers. Obviously, yeah. And, and the money that comes in is, is strictly through people who are, are aware of your work and what you're doing and they want to they help and they want to support. So they're, they're donating their money mm -hmm. and, then, and then you're putting it out to where it needs to go. Yeah, so I am like an established nonprofit, but I'm under an umbrella organization of another um, Tides Foundation, okay. which I don't know if that's important for you to know, but I, you know, I'm under their auspices and they are, in fact... You know, so it is all the tax deductible and they vet it and make sure that, you know, who I am donating my money to is an organization that is, they are an established nonprofit. And that's just how I work it because I don't want to be a big nonprofit that 
has a board and is, you know, that's my job. Because my job is really to be a photographer, first and foremost. You Do know? you work with any other photographers with this particular project, or is this solo you this shooting? This is solo me. Like, I'm doing the whole show. I mean, and it is, yeah, it's overwhelming sometimes. And... And that's why I'm just kind of keeping it at the level that I'm at. I'm not doing big fundraisers. I mean, this is just, it's a personal thing, you know? And I, it's, it's really about bringing awareness to people that are doing amazing things and also bringing awareness to certain problems that are out there. I just came back from Bangladesh photographing these Rohingya refugees, 300,000 of them. They think there's maybe up to 500,000 of them that are there mm -hmm. that are on the beaches of, you know, Cox's Bazaar. It's absolutely heartbreaking, these stories, you know? And, and, and are all of these based through assignments that you've had or self-assignments? And do you photograph everything that, you're, that, you're, that your fund is also contributing to or you try no, to? No, most things are, you know, most things are like actual assignments that I'm doing that, you know, I've been hired to, you know, my work. But um, so I, I just... I'm coming out with my 10th book that's coming out in the fall. It's called Human Tribe. So all of my bodies of work are really looking at this idea of this universal human connection. How are we connected? And that, I feel, is always my theme, you know? And so this book, Human Tribe, is sort of, you know, I've been to now like 150 countries. And my big takeaway is that no matter how different we look, we all want the same thing the world over. We all want to love and be loved. We all want a little money in our pocket, enough to get by. We want safety and health for ourselves, our friends, our family, our kids to be educated. We want, you know, our, our families to be okay. And we make it more complicated than it needs to be. So the theme of my work is just looking at, you know, how are we, how are we connected? And so... I'm always looking for assignments that can sort of like pull these books together because these books take years to do. You know, the books, a book I did, Faces of Hope, was on children all over the world. And that was Does looking the at theme children's of the book rights. Come first? I mean, or is it something that you. No, no it's more like, you know, it ebbs and flows. Like, it's not like I say, okay, I'm going to do this, and then that's the only work I do because I'm doing a lot of other work. Like, this latest book on portraits is just an accumulation of years of pulling different portraits together, the book on children. Um, you know, I was working as a newspaper photographer years ago when I first started, and then I got an assignment to go to Nepal for three weeks, and it was for UNICEF, and I just fell in love with Nepal. They hired me, and, and I didn't leave for over four years. So <laughs> I just, yeah, They canceled the flight again. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I keep going that's back to the like, That's like you in New just, Jersey, right? That's me in New Jersey. Yeah. I have the same experience. My same family's excuse. like, are you ever coming home? And you know, so that turned into that turned into a book. And then I, I ended up getting really involved with the Tibetan refugee situation. And then that turned into a book. And then when the Dalai Lama heard what I was doing, he met with me. And then I ended up traveling with him for 15 years. Then that turned into a book. So it just, like, the next book just keeps evolving. Obviously, you went through a big change after your accident. Um, do you approach your subjects or photography differently? Not, not just, and obviously, you, you have a goal now. There's a, there's a, there's, there's a, a path that you're following. But is, is your approach to photography different than it was prior to all of this happening to you? I definitely, it's brought a whole new empathy to my work. This, okay. yes. I, I, 
truly know what it's like to suffer. And there's something that I feel that they feel that I know what it's like to suffer. Like when I'm with people, I don't know. I, I, it's very raw, you know, and, and also, you know, the way that I approach people, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm small, I'm five foot two, I'm a woman. I, there's something also that's there, this dance of like, and I'm carrying all this equipment and I'll, and I'll just be, you know, like approaching people like to photograph them. And it's kind of putting yourself out there saying, hey, I'm willing to be vulnerable. Will you be vulnerable with me? You know, and a lot of times I don't even speak the language. So you're kind of having to communicate in this heartfelt connection, this heartfelt way that... You're dealing on emotional levels. Yeah. And I find that really, truly beautiful. To some people, it's very intimidating. They look at it like, oh my gosh, how do you go into a place and you don't speak the language and it's so awkward. That's when you first learn what communication is. Yeah, and I just think that to Mm -hmm. me is why I do what I do. And I think I do it really well. Like that, you know, to me, it's like, how do you go in there and really, truly capture that, you know? And... And it's funny because I'll go up, like, even when I'm doing, like, tours or something, like, people laugh because I'll go up to somebody and when I touch them or move them, I'll go up and I'll say, can I touch you? Is it okay to touch you? And they, and people laugh like, they don't understand what you're saying. Why do you say that? And I'm like, because it's a sign of respect. Yeah. And they know that. They might not understand what I'm saying, but they get that. And that's huge. Like, if you're touching somebody... You should ask them, is it okay to touch you? And, you know, it's... Um... Ellen, remember that, please. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a good... <laughs> yeah, by the way, I've really been behaving... Usually I'm the wise-ass in these things. I've been behaving myself with you because your story is just amazing. It's awesome. <laughs> Can I ask, though, do, do, you, do you sense that prior to the accident that you didn't have the empathy or is it something that you look back? Because as a photographer... That's kind of one of our, one of, should be, I feel, one of our core traits, empathy, and, and the ability to kind of feel and show that. And did you feel that you, you gained that in, in it, or you didn't have it prior, looking no. back? No, well, or, you know what? Yeah. I, what I thought was really interesting is I actually started this foundation about 10 years ago, this fund. And I actually got really heavily criticized for it because at first... Because there was this idea that you should not get that emotionally involved in, in your subjects. And I sort of came from that schooling of, as, you know, I'm well, not... a journalist. Yeah, I idea. mean, <clears throat> I, I personally wouldn't call myself a pure photojournalist. I don't do that kind of work anymore because I don't work purely for news. And, you know, I have a different take on things. I mean... I do have a way of looking at the world where I package it in a way where um, I did used to do that kind of work. And I just felt like frustrated at the outlets. And I felt like the way that I want to show my work or get my message across is being too um, hindered. You know, like I got tired of showing the problems all the time. I wanted to start showing the solutions because 
I felt like it's a page turner, you know, like everything was so depressing. So if you look at my work and my books, there's, there's, there's hope in there. There's, you're looking at things that are showing, that's why I do a lot more of the aid humanitarian work. There's a lot more and the way that I do the books because you can see through my exhibition that, that, that that's how I feel like it can help people more because you become more engaged. You think, oh, hey, you know what? I'd like to see these people hang around on the planet a little bit longer. I see that this is helping. But if you're just like, oh my God, like here's like another thing, like another bomb went off, another, you know, this more war, like, ugh. And are you, know. you earning a buck on this suffering? Yeah. That's another way it could be interpreted by a, a lot of yeah, people. Yeah, that's a really valid, you know, sure. when I was just back in Haiti, God, they just hated, you know, now they like hate you because you're coming in and taking pictures. Well, it's like that, there's, it's a joke in a sense where, you know, a photographer stumbles upon a person dangling by their fingers from a log in a stream in a runaway flood you know, decision has to be made. Am I shooting this wide angle or telephoto? You know, and that's because to a lot of photographers, they're just, that's the way they're wired. No, yeah. you put down the camera sometimes and or in I your have. case, use the camera. To I have put down the camera. I have a picture that I just showed today of a woman weeping on the beach. Her hands are covering her face. She's devastated because she lost a couple of her children to the sea after the tsunami in Sri Lanka. And as I was photographing her, she picked herself up and threw herself in the ocean, tried to drown herself. I didn't want a pictures of a woman drowning herself. I know which picture you're talking about. Yeah, that I literally wow. picked her up and I threw my body on her and I held her down until somebody could help me to drag her away and help her. You know, those aren't the pictures that I want. That's not my story. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not my my drive in life. That's not what I'm striving for to look for. So... It's not that I didn't have empathy. It's more that I felt like, you know, there was something socially that we were not supposed to be as involved. And I just said, hey, you know what? If that makes me an activist, that's a term I can live with. And now what's interesting is I see a lot of people now are starting funds and foundations. And that's great. I think, I think we should, you know, I think that we should use our photography to help in whatever capacity, in whatever way it takes. And if we can do that more directly, then I don't know. I don't know what the answers are, but that's the small little way that I see of how I want to handle my work. You, you know, know we, the, I wanted to ask this earlier and, and you've answered <clears throat> it in, in several different ways, which I think is great. But this idea of making a difference with a photo um, with just an image, do you think it's possible to make a difference? Have you seen that happen? Have you seen the image itself really turn something around? Somebody asked me that, and do you, do you think that an image can make a difference? And so I threw the question back out to the audience. Because I ask myself that every single day. And I, I'll admit to you, I have been tearfully crying sometimes with a friend saying, what am I even doing with my life? I give up everything. I'm not doing this for the money. I, I give up being with friends, with family, with life to do this. And for what? Like coming back from Haiti, I was like, why am I even doing this? People are still, it's, life's not improving. What am I doing this for? And yet, so I, when somebody asked me that same question in the audience, can a picture change situation can picture change a life and I say I throw that question out to you and the audience I said is anybody in this room after seeing my presentation today 
Is there anybody that's walking out of here feeling at all changed, inspired, moved, motivated, or different in any way? And a number of people said yes. And I said, great. My job is... You earned your paycheck today. Yeah, thank you. That's, yeah. My, that's all I ask because I had to give up on can I change the world? Believe me, that's how I started out. And that's what I hoped for, but it's not going to happen. You know, I mean, of course we see photos and we get so moved. There's always going to be iconic photographs. And, you know, it's a wonderful thing when we each, you know, we might have our own little moment of iconic, you know, something like for me, Tibet Girl at, at National Geographic, that was like I had a little moment in the sun with that. You know, that it's not life changing, but it, you know, at least it got some recognition. You know, were there any photo books that you looked at growing up that you said that's what I want to do, or anything off the top of your head? Oh my goodness! Or, yeah, I mean, I I love the black and whites, which is funny because I don't shoot black and white, but they're still my favorite. Like, I was going to ask you about that if you shot monochrome at all. I yeah. did. I shot black and white, of course, for years because that's how long I've been doing it. But, um, you know, Eugene Smith and Salgado, um, Dorothy Lang, Jakob Rees um, for the content and um, Lewis Hine. And, you know, I wanted to be those people. I thought those were the changers and the documentarians that, you know, maybe my work will be important in 100 years, you know, and I'm working on this this amazing project now, again, it's like, it's a long-term project, but it's just looking, um, you know, women, women working around the world and just how, it's so fascinating to me, you know, just how, I think they're, they're in developing countries, you know, how they're going to change the world. And so I get into this idea of, um, these long-term meaty projects, and so I feel like I should be 150 years old because it takes me like 20 <laughs> years to like work on each book, you know. But but there's something really. It's funny because I used to think books were so amazing, and now I get really stressed because they feel so. It's like you're carving something out on a rock. Yeah. Um, something we started talking a little bit about black and white and monochrome mm -hmm. shot. One of the things I noticed is that. Often in your photographs, there's sort of a muted palette or mm. monochromatic palette. And you have one little piece of color go boom, which mm. is a great design game, I always call it. But mm -hmm. it seems that you do the lot. There's a whole stuff going on, and you have one piece of color that kind of anchors your eye to that yeah. picture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I noticed it a few times. There's always a spot of orange or red mm. or, or blue in the middle of something. Mm. And are you doing that consciously? Because it's there a lot. I mean, I love it. it, it it's, I'm not calling it gimmicky, but it's something that I've used myself where I just try to pull a color in. Is that a conscious effort? Or it's just the way it works out? No, I'm definitely conscious of color. I mean, that's why I'm I mean, that's why I love color so much. I mean, because I think you have to really think about color, you know? It's just, to me, that's part of the imagery, mm -hmm. you know? And because now, especially because I work so much in Africa and Asia, like... Oh, color is amazing yeah, there because it's, it's symbolic and everything, mm -hmm. sure. And it was really interesting because I started out, when I went to Asia, I, I was still shooting black and white. 
And when I got this assignment for UNICEF, they had 600 rolls of color transparency film waiting for me. Can you imagine? <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, I guess I have to learn how to shoot color. color. And That's I never, almost a gig of data. And I never even got to see it, you know? I mean, I was like, oh my, you know. Really? Yeah. You shot it and sent it back? And I had to shoot it and send it back. Oh. And I mean, transparency, that's yeah, so unforgiving. That's totally, and, you know, yeah. it was... So I was shooting both for a long time and then, you know, and, and I've been, you know, I've had to go through the whole gambit here. Now it's like, you know, then going into the digital thing, we kept hoping that would like go away <laughs> and then it didn't. And so we'd shoot digital There's and some color. There's still hoping it'll go away. Yeah. And now I'm, <laughs> now I'm like, God, do this it? is not what I signed up for, yeah. this whole digital thing. <laughs> it is really, but so it's, um. Yeah, because I think you have to be very careful with color. It's something that I don't want to have overtake the the subject of, or what I'm trying to say. It's got to accent. It's got to work in in the favor. And and as it I, does in your work, yes. And, and what and I you, and use the word accent, mm -hmm. and that's really a good way of describing how you use a lot of the colors. They just accent little parts of it. And, and I mentioned uh, when I, in my talk that it's very, uh, I studied photojournalism, but I also studied painting as my undergrad. Uh, I did photojournalism and painting, and I still study painting. Like whenever I go in the museums and, you know, Rembrandt and Vermeer, I'm always looking like, what's the light source? I'm very much into natural light. And, you know, what is that, you know, how is that uh, adding to the you know, to the image and not have it be too overpowering. And then uh, after living overseas for 10 years, I got, I got every disease you can imagine, malaria, typhoid, dysentery. I got uh, like Jardian dysentery like 15 times. I got a worm in my head, which is definitely not a first date story. <laughs> I got a worm in, worms in my lungs. I got bot flies. I mean, it was like over the top. So um, eventually I landed in the tropical disease hospital in London for four months. And they said, you can't go back to Asia for at least a year. And I don't want to waste time. So I applied to UC Berkeley. I, and I thought I didn't want to come back to the States without health insurance. So I went back, I applied to get my graduate degree. So I went to UC Berkeley and got uh, my master's degree in visual anthropology, studying culture through photography and film, which was a great way to bring all my Tibet work together because I've been photographing the Tibetan culture in exile for the four years I was living in Nepal. And it was, UC Berkeley was, they said, well, we don't even know what visual anthropology is, but it sounds like a great idea. So <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote my own program there, but it was really cool. I made it work for me. It was a great program. And I got my first book contract out of my master's thesis, The Spirit of Tibet. And, you know, that was the whole idea was this, all this Tibet work. And I used their, their words, their stories with their, their photos, because I was... I was very interested in, you know, there were 120,000 Tibetan refugees. How was a culture surviving without a country? And that was the whole premise of this, all this work that I've been doing. And this is what I talk about, like pursuing your own passion, that I was just kind of doing that on my own time while living in Asia. It's like going to all 57 Tibetan refugee settlements. And that's when the Dalai Lama got wind of that. And then we became friends and... The rest is history. The rest is history. But people, if our listeners would like to see more of your work and see what you're doing, what 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 sites should they go to? 
My website is www.allisonwright.com. And that's W-R-I-G-H-T. And it's and Allison with one, one L. L. With one L, <laughs> yes. A-L-I-S-O-N-W-R-I-G-H-T. And for Faces of Hope? At facesofhope.org. Okay. And follow me on Instagram, yeah. Allison Wright Photo. But just another, let's Faces of Hope. Dot org. Let's That's, yeah. Yeah, use this to use that as your starting point, can, folks. You know? yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate yeah. that. Please, thank you. Okay. All right, Allison, I thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, that's another fine show. Thanks to Allison and Salem for sharing their time and thoughts. Remember to pull over to the side of the road the first chance you get and subscribe to our show on iTunes. On behalf of John Harris and Jason Tables, I'm Alan Weitz, and thank you so much for joining us today. 